The most important thing uh, we achieved today was to agree on this broad framework for policies and reform both China and the United States to help lay the foundation for a more sustainable, more balanced global recovery. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Today is Wednesday, July 29th. That was Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner, you heard at the top of the podcast, talking about China's economy, as everybody knows, I'm sure. The first round of China-U.S. strategic and economic dialogue wrapped up yesterday. And on today's podcast, we're going to be talking about how the role of the United States in the global economy has changed. You have a nice conversation about that, Adam. Yeah, and I was on All Things Considered today talking about it, too. All right. Um, But first... Our Planet Money Indicator. Today's indicator is 0.5%. That was a very nice reading. Thank you. That is the percent by which housing prices increased. That is right. I said increased. Housing prices increased. They did. They increased in the three-month period ending in May. According to the latest Standard & Poor's Case-Shiller Housing Price Index, so I guess that means it's over. The crisis is over. Right. Because, you know, that index, the Case-Shiller... Standard & Poor's Index is a widely used measure of national home prices. Robert Schiller, the guy who runs that index, was one of the early warners of the housing bubble, saying we had a problem in the housing market long before other people noticed it. So the fact that he, of all people, is saying, like, housing prices are up, that could mean something. But. Yes, there's a but. Yes. There's a big but. (laughs) This number is surprising. You said big but. Yes. (laughs) Hey, this is a family (laughs) podcast. (laughs) This number is surprising. And... Maybe, possibly. It's the kind of thing that would signal that the housing market has hit bottom and, you know, we're now going to just see housing prices going up and up. But it could be something else, couldn't it? Right. It, it's, a lot of people worry that this might just be a statistical blip. The result of the foreclosure moratorium that a lot of the big banks underwent in the spring um, see, a lot of big lenders agreed to stop initiating foreclosures this spring as part of a voluntary effort to help shore up the housing market. Um, and because they were doing that, we didn't have as many foreclosed properties flooding the market. So there wasn't as much downward pressure on house prices from those foreclosed properties. But that much moratorium is over. So lots more foreclosures than there were, lots more forced selling of houses. And as all these foreclosed houses hit the market, prices will, some people think, go back to going down, sliding. And that, right. And that might show up in future Case-Shiller price index data. We'll see. There's actually a great discussion on housing prices and what this increase means on one of my favorite blogs, as you know, Adam, the blog Calculated Risks. I think that is your favorite blog. You could just say not one of, but right? I mean, you love that blog. I love that blog. I have a personal emotional relationship with really blog. You really do. I do. I do. <laughs> it's a good blog. It I like good. it, but yeah. you love it. I know. I know. I would, I, would, I would agree with you, but that would mean that my favorite blog in all the world is about mortgage finance, and I'm not sure I'm prepared to in- admit that. And of course, your favorite blog in all the world is the Plant Money blog. Exactly. At npr.org slash money. All right. (laughs) So um, today we are going to start something that I've been wanting to do for a long time and I hope will become a regular feature here, maybe like every month. Um, As we have mentioned on this podcast, right kitty corner, we can see outside our window Eurasia Group. That's this uh, very prominent political economy consultancy group. Basically, it's a big floor full of smart people. I know a lot of them who just spend all day figuring out what's going on all over the world and how it affects global politics and economics. And the guy who runs it, Ian Bremmer, 
is a friend of ours. And uh, every Monday I get this email from him. It's an elite little group of people, most of whom have to pay a lot of money. But luckily, because I'm in the press, <laughs> I get it for free. <laughs> uh, explaining Ian's views on what's going on around the world. And it makes me feel way smarter. Right. Uh, We've had Ian Brammer on the podcast several times before, and he's been great. Right. And uh, so this time I wanted to do more like what he normally does, which is go around the world and explain a bunch of key themes. The key theme we talked about this week is um, how the U.S. has changed. So right now we're just about a year into this financial crisis. We're coming on the anniversary of of, of the acute days of last September and October. And, you know, for, for most of our life, we've been the unquestioned financial power in the world. The U.S. has been. And pretty much everyone in the world, at least, you know, post-Soviet Union, post-Cold War, had a very strong incentive to be friendly to us and listen to the U.S. And the U.S. tended to kind of go around the world and boss people around and say, oh, we know how to run an economy. You should do what we do. And so I've been wondering a lot, like, how is that over? Has that changed? So I asked Ian Bremmer, have we lost power? Have we lost influence? Are we less of a major superpower? And Bremer said, basically, yes, we are less for two reasons. We are, first of all, because uh, other countries have come out of the recession much more quickly than the U.S. And the Americans' ability to spend, 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 to be the driver of the global economy just isn't what it was. And frankly, what it was probably wasn't what it was, as we're finding out. It wasn't a sustainable negative 2.5% savings rate in the U.S. a couple years ago is not something you can do ad infinitum. But the second reason we don't have the same level of influence um, is that uh, we no longer are as focused on the foreign policy. I mean, the fact is uh, we're just coming out of this uh, uh, strategic and economic dialogue uh, between the United States and China. And Geithner, uh, Secretary of Treasury, is one of the top interlocutors. He has 80,000 things on his plate before he gets to China. Obama's top five priorities are all domestic. And that, of course, also diminishes the ability of the United States to act as the world's superpower. Early in the crisis, I interviewed a former Indian finance minister. I think it was on our very first podcast on Planet Money and Yashwant Sinha, if I remember correctly. And he was just gleeful. He was giggling, literally. He was talking about how often U.S. Treasury officials would show up in India and just condescend to the Indian financial minister just make him feel like a jerk for not knowing how to run a modern economy. And he's like, see, the Americans now learned. Now they learned. They're not so good. That just, you know, coolness factor, what do we call it? Reputation of, of infallibility. Does that affect our ability to go around the world or is it more about raw power? I, I think that affects it less so. I think that's very short term. There's no question that there is a lot of browbeating uh, going on um, and a lot of chest thumping going on um, in, um, in in the emerging markets world. Uh, the BRICS summit that we saw a couple right. of Brazil, months Russia, ago, India, Brazil, China. Russia, India, China, all saying, you know, this free market model led by the United States and the developed states, look what happened to the world as a consequence of that. Our models clearly are more relevant, more useful. But of course, you know, emerging markets are not so stable and they need the United States as a global driver. So as gleeful as they want to be, you know, whenever I, when people get too pessimistic about the U.S. and they say, will the U.S. matter in five years? I say, substitute United States for the world's most important and largest economy. And then ask me the same question. Will the world's largest economy in five years matter? 
Will people still pay attention to it? And then the question seems a little bit silly. And yet that question is actually being asked by a bunch of folks today. So we do need to take a little step back from the silliness and the gleefulness that we hear. So you are – so let me just get it because you said two things that could be seen as contradictory. So on True. the one hand, we, we, have, we are not as influential as we were a year ago because of the financial crisis. But we're still the most influential country in the world. And is this just a minor blip? And assuming, you know, sometime in 2010 we get back to sustained growth, do we just go back to being as influential as we were or have we permanently fallen down a notch? Well, I think we need to recognize that part of how we've fallen down is our own willingness to take on that mantle. There were a lot more people that were prepared to accept the United States as the world's policeman. That is just not true today. And I don't see that coming back because of the difficulties the American economy is experiencing. So even though the United States will be the most important power out there, it won't get you as much. What we will see will be, on average, reduced global economic gains, less efficiency, and we will also see increasing absence of leadership on key issues. So before where the United States was really driving through all sorts of uh, decisions on financial architecture and proliferation and collective security and all of the rest, increasingly you will see that those decisions just won't get made. It's not that China is going to suddenly step into the saddle and they're going to create a new reserve currency. They'll just be in absence of those things and that will create much more market volatility. So let's talk – we promised our listeners we go around the world a little. Uh, when you talk about this vacuum of international leadership, I guess the biggest crisis in the world right now, is it Iran? Is that the biggest emerging crisis? That's, well, if you want to talk about both combination of direct tensions and impact on the markets on a global basis and you want to leave aside what's happening in Washington, that's probably your biggest, Jeff. So are we seeing already the – the U.S. taking a, a, a surprisingly quiet stand on Iran, or is this what we would have expected even if we hadn't had the financial crisis and lost power because it's a domestic election dispute? The Obama administration's talked about engagement, and uh, you know the domestic scene in Iran is not moving in that direction at all. There's also a lot of instability at the highest levels in the Iranian government now, even among the conservative mullahs. And so as a consequence, you have many on the sidelines, including Sarkozy in France, including Netanyahu in Israel, meeting with a bunch of American policymakers this week saying, you need to get diplomacy done fast or else. So Obama said by September – Wait, wait, wait. So Israel and France are saying to the U.S. or will take action? Well, or I mean, else, France and Israel are or pretty else far apart. Or less far apart than you'd think with Sarkozy. Historically, of course, they have been with the French sort of uh, indifference uh, or at least ambiguity towards NATO. Um, but that's changing. Uh, the point is, what is the or else? The Israelis are very assertively Barack just uh, the other day the, saying that uh, – Ehud Barak, the uh, minister of defense. Defense and the coalition partner with Netanyahu uh, saying that he um, reserves very explicitly the military option. and Meaning bombing potential nuclear uh, sites in Iran. Well, they've never been explicit about what the military option would be, but one would think that bombing nuclear sites would at least enter into the party. Um, I, I am uh, – no one in Israel really wants to do that. No one knows what the or else is, but we're moving towards the or else moment, and the Obama administration doesn't really have a policy. In fact, their special envoy for Iran, Dennis Ross, actually was suddenly moved uh, from special envoy status the day after Iranian election. 
elections. Never a good thing for an administration. So let me see if I can place this narrative correctly, and, and I'm probably wrong here. But what I'm hearing is the U.S. had a financial crisis. Uh, our, our attention is much more domestic. We're not caring so much about the rest of the world because we're afraid our own way of life will collapse. We've sort of disappeared from the world stage. And as a result, the Obama administration, which only recently has a well-formulated response to the financial crisis, to the number one priority or number two priority, does not have a well-formulated Middle East vision or Iran vision. Or China vision or, or North China Korea vision. vision. Or I North Korea right. vision. And as a result, places like Israel and France that have more immediate concerns about Iran are able to have more say, more influence, potentially. They, at least they feel confident enough to kind of yell at the U.S. and say, this is what you got to do. I think that's true. And I also think that it's going to be increasingly difficult to coordinate responses because America's influence is going to be constrained by its lack of attention. Obama can only do so many things. Look, he has a, a great amount of talent on his foreign policy team, widely construed, if you include intelligence and defense and all that sort of thing. And um, they're adults. Uh, but at the same time, um, there is no Obama doctrine in the way that there has been a Bush doctrine, a Reagan doctrine, a Carter doctrine. The Obama, whatever you think of those doctrines, whatever, they existed. <laughs> like them, don't like them, they existed. Obama's foreign policy approach is I'm going to deal with it as a risk manager and I'm going to respond to crises as they pop up. But when these things don't work, when things break and when a big decision has to be made, what will Obama do? We actually don't know. We have no idea. With, with Bush, we knew. We probably didn't like it on many occasions, but we knew. And this is going to lead to a lot of uh, ad hocracy um, on the part of some of our allies and, and some of our uh, more strategic competitors around the world. It's, it's really interesting hearing him talk about that because like, I, I don't – like hearing that conversation, I'm not sure what, what, to, what to think about it. Like is that better to have a president like Ian Bremmer says – President Obama is, somebody who is just sort of like a pragmatic person with a lot on his plate, not really sort of forcing one doctrine or another? Or, or, or do we want somebody with a doctrine? Like, I, I'm not sure where I come down on that. Or did, did, does Ian Bremmer say that one is better than the other? He didn't say that. And I think, you know, um, without getting too political or partisan, I think it's safe to say there's not a huge amount of appetite in the world for a U.S. doctrine that's a, that's you know assertively imposed in, in many ways. I mean, President Bush is not popular around the world. Let's just you know, or in his foreign policy, I think at this point has very low ratings in the U.S. And so I think there's very a lot of comfort with the idea that okay, we're not going to just have some policy that that um, is going to be imposed no matter what. But what Ian Bremmer did say that that is lacking is any ability to know to predict. Um, you know, mm -hmm. again, for better or for worse, you sort of had a good sense of how President Bush would respond to a crisis. Um, with Obama, it is, you know, a lot of folks, say they just don't know how to think. Is he going to seek more of a, a friendly appeasement with North Korea? Is he going to get tough with North Korea? Is he going to um, really eventually come down hard on Iran? Is what's I've, I've been reading a lot about Israel. They they have no idea what he thinks about Israel. Um, there, there's a real suspicion of him there. And so if there's maybe you don't need a full on doctrine, but some predictability, some understanding of here's how I'm here are the tools I'm going to use or here's the basis 
uh, you know, the ideological or the intellectual basis I'm going to use to to make decisions. And Bremer says the lack of that creates uncertainty, which which is dangerous. Mm-hmm. I know it's interesting though because like sort of uh, Obama has sort of built himself as like sort of a pragmatist. He's sort of trying to you know going back to the. Red states, blue states, there's just purple states. He's always been sort of saying, like, I'm going to try to take the ideas of both camps and try to be non-ideological. That's at least how many people disagree that he is that way, but that's sort of what he, how he presents himself. And so it's sort of interesting to see that represented in foreign policy where people are used to thinking, like, we're going to have somebody ideological sort of at the helm who's going to be making ideological decisions that we can then sort of counter plan off of or something. Right. I guess. right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing he said that I found very interesting is that for all, everything the U.S. lost globally and diplomatically because of the Iraq war, um, that it, he Bremer says that's nothing compared to what we lost because of the financial crisis. It's a the, the entire Iraq experience is a tiny blip compared to the global influence we have lost because of this crisis, which I found really wow, interesting. Wow, that is fascinating. Now, now speaking of, of Iraq, you and Ian Bremmer talked about uh, Iraq, your, your favorite subject. Yeah, in fact, uh, you know, there's a phrase I have said so many times uh, on this podcast that, that, that our wonderful producer, Caitlin Kenny, who never misses an opportunity to tease us, has made an actual tape cut, so I don't have to waste my time saying it. I can just point my finger at the engineer. When I was in Iraq, <laughs> right? I've heard that phrase before. It's true. Hey, look, I've gotten a lot of flack from, well, you guys and people on the blog. Go spend a year in Iraq. It is a formative experience. It has changed who I am in a very fundamental way. It changes how I think about economics, politics. I fell in love with my wife there. It has changed everything about my life. I am not ashamed of the fact that I frequently say, when I was in Iraq... <laughs> Yes, you do frequently say it, but I, I agree. I, I'm, I'm with you. That's great. Uh, I, the way I understand it, the way I explain it to myself is I, I just think, well, Adam feels the same way about his time in Iraq that I feel about the housing blog calculated risk. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you and Ian, Ian Bremer talked a lot about Iraq, right? Yeah, and, and here's something weird. I, I actually – all right, so another confession. I don't follow the day-to-day news about Iraq as much as I once did. And I hadn't really been following the business and economics news in Iraq. But Ian Bremmer said it's becoming – Iraq is becoming a good news story. He said that um, if you look at the electoral process, it's moving towards a reasonably trustworthy electoral process. He said that uh, the key issues in Iraq are no longer – Will this country split apart into three warring factions and create a world war in which the Middle East and the rest of the world go into all-out chaos? The key issues are kind of boring policy issues. What's the best hydrocarbons law? What should our trade relationship with Turkey be? You know, kind of boring, typical country stuff rather than this – terrifying vision that I certainly had that it's going to break apart and Turkey's going to go to war with Iran and Saudi Arabia and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So now, no question, Bremer says, the country is very, very far from being some kind of ideal country. You know, a lot of my Iraqi friends keep calling me up and telling me, oh, my God, it is more corrupt than ever. The government's incredibly corrupt. But Bremer says that it's becoming more like an average kind of lousy country which is slightly better yeah 
there are a lot of dangerous places in the world that people invest. I mean, Nigeria has been an interesting market for all sorts of uh, investors, not just oil. I mean, consumer products and the rest, infrastructure, telecommunications for a long time now. Iraq is starting to become interesting for a lot of folks. CEOs are traveling there. Yes, they have flak jackets. Yes, they have security. But they're going. They're going to Baghdad, not even the north of Iraq. That was inconceivable two years ago. That's becoming a good news story. Wow, that is that is really remarkable that there's like you got CEOs of companies dri- traveling to Iraq and trying to see if there's a way to um, open up operations there, start selling stuff to the Iraqi people. Hey, Caitlin, can you play my favorite cut? When I was in Iraq, <laughs> when I was in Iraq, <laughs> something that I noticed, I mean, there's all this attention played to oil. But here's something else I noticed. You know, there was very little trade with much of the rest of the world. Most of the consumer products that people had were cheap Chinese knockoffs for the most part. Mm-hmm. And I, I just kept noticing this is a country of 25 million people. Uh, you know, the average income might not be that high, but it's a country with tremendous wealth from oil. And it's a country that has no brand loyalty. There's no – they don't have a cell phone manufacturer or a refrigerator manufacturer or a shampoo or whatever that they're deeply loyal to. And I – I would just think, like, if you're vice president of sales for Motorola or Procter & Gamble or whatever, how often does an entire wealthy country of 25 million people suddenly appear on the world stage? Like, it, it you know, it's it's available. Like, you can go in and sell. And, and the Iraqi people, they want consumer products, believe me. So I've always thought, like, once this violence, once this level of true chaos goes away – it, it's going to be a crazy free-for-all. Right. And, of course, you said earlier, though, there's a long way to go before we get to this, uh, before we get to this sort of vision of, of, uh, of, a, of sort of a, a trading partner and less of, you know, and, and not um, a foreign policy nightmare. Um, uh, and, Adam, you said you wanted to talk to Ian Bremmer again. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm hoping to have him in, uh, I'd say, like once a month. Let's go around the world, do a quick check-in. I think he, his insights are very helpful because he combines political and economic analysis to help you understand how the world has changed, um, what what are the big stories, but the good insight into the stories that we are following. And he's very helpful to me in pointing out stories that I don't, you know, I know more about Kazakhstan as a result of Eurasia group emails than anything else. <laughs> so um, let us know what you would like us to talk about, the untold stories. Um, we're still going to be covering the financial crisis, but we do want to expand Planet Money's uh, area of focus to include the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so please send us emails, planetmoney at npr.org, or write to us on our blog, npr.org slash money, or go to our Facebook page, write to us there. Lots of ways to write to us. Actually, I'm going to give you Alex's home address right now. You can write... <laughs> Yeah, and we're going to have an excerpt from one of those Monday morning notes from Ian Bremmer on our blog, npr.org slash money, so make sure you check it out. And that does it for us today. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. We are-